0: I turn your attention this morning to Judges, the book of Judges, chapter 6. And as you're turning there, also you will have noticed an insert in the bulletin as well. This is just a sheet giving you some awareness of various things that you can help with in this congregation and who to contact if you are wanting to help in these specific areas. So, uh, if you have no... If you aren't yet involved in something or there's something that catches your eye or you're wondering what's involved there, can I help there? Things carry on, things, these things continue whether you help or not, but many hands make light work and some of these ministries certainly could do with more help and additional help for them. So keep them in mind and uh, pray over them and how uh, you may be of service to the body of Christ and beyond. And uh, maybe you have some other area that you can contribute, and maybe you have some burden and you need help to execute that, then let us know and certainly consider that as well. Judges chapter 6 is where we are this morning. Judges chapter 6. We are uh, going through a series, what I've entitled, uh, Lives Well Lived. Um, we're just going over a number of characters in the Scriptures that lived well and that we can learn from as the Lord gives us help. And we're coming this morning to the life of Gideon, which I trust will be of encouragement to you. So to set the scene, we're going to read the opening 18 verses. I think will be sufficient for our purposes this morning. And yet we'll try to drop into the various details that are relevant so, Judges chapter 6, verse 1. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Let's pay attention to God's holy truth. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. And because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made them the dens which are in the mountains and caves and strongholds. And so it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites came up, and the Amalekites and the children of the east, even they came up against them, and they encamped against them and destroyed the increase of the earth, till they come unto Gaza, and left no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor ass. And they came up with their cattle and their tents, and they came as grasshoppers for multitude, for both they and their camels were without number." And they entered into the land to destroy it. And Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. It came to pass when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord because of the Midianites, that the Lord sent a prophet unto the children of Israel, which said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt, and brought you forth out of the house of bondage. And I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, and out of the hand of all that oppressed you, and drove them out from before you, and gave you their land. And I said unto you, I am the Lord your God, fear not the God of the Amorites, in whose land ye dwell, but ye have not obeyed my voice. And there came an angel of the Lord, and sat under an oak which was in Orpha, that pertained unto Joash the Abba Azrite. And his son Gideon threshed wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him and said unto him, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. Gideon said unto him, O my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then is all this befallen us? And where be all his miracles which our fathers told us of, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? And now the Lord hath forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites." And the Lord looked upon him and said, Go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have not I sent thee? And he said unto him, O my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said unto him, Surely I will be with thee, and thou shalt smite the Midianites as one man. And he said unto him, If now I have found grace in thy sight, then show me a sign that thou talkest with me. Depart not hence, I pray thee, until I come unto thee, and bring forth my present, and set it before thee. And he said, I will tarry until thou come again. Amen. We'll end the reading there, though we'll be looking at much more of the narrative than this. But may God write his precious word on every one of our hearts. Let's pray. Let's look to the Lord for his help. You need a word from God. I don't know what that is, but the Lord knows, and He will meet that need. Lord, we pray for the help that is necessary. Things are not accomplished by our own strength. Lives are not changed by mere human argument. These people that stand before us today need a word from God. I pray that that word may be forthcoming in power and great influence. So, Lord, I pray for grace both to preach, power to preach, and the help necessary to receive the Word. Blessed Spirit, take what is of Thee and apply it with power. Change hearts and lives, even save those that may be in a condition of unbelief this morning. We'll give Thee all the praise. Come, Lord, mercifully. We are not worthy... But may Christ be made much of today, we pray in His precious name. Amen. About two centuries or so had passed since Joshua had led the armies of Israel, as it were, or at least the the children of Israel, into the promised land. Many things had happened in that space of time, and the book of Judges gives to us some of those events. The opening chapters of Judges indicate to us that the experience of the children of Israel was was really cyclical. That is to say, what they went through was something that really was familiar over and over and over again. There would arise a generation that would forget the true God and His mercy towards them, would forget His blessing and His intervention on their behalf. And they would begin to adopt the sins and the practices of those around them and give themselves to idolatry and turn away from the Lord sinning against Him. God then would bring their enemies upon them. They would have no rest and no peace. And eventually then, under that oppression, they would cry unto the Lord. And as they would cry, then God would raise up a means of deliverance. The cycle is repeated. Sin, suffering, sorrow, salvation. That's what you find through the book of Judges over and over again. And by the time we come to Judges chapter 6, Israel have had three judges to deliver them from their enemies. And once again, they have turned away from God. And God has brought upon them the Midianites. We are told that specifically at verse 1, the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian. So now they are under their oppression. They're under their servitude. And for seven years, this continues, according to verse 7. And we come then to verse 6, we are told, Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, and so on and so forth. God begins to work in deliverance and intervention for them. The Midianites are found previous in Scripture, They are those that are actually descendants from Abraham. If you were to go to Genesis chapter 25, you would learn from the opening verses there that Midian was one of the sons of Abraham born to Keturah and sent by Abraham to live eastward from where he was. You'll also know that Moses, when he fled at 40 years of age from Egypt, he goes into the land of Midian, and it's there in the land of Midian that he marries a Midianite. So the Midianites were a people with a close connection to Israel. They were people that had a certain familiarity with them. And by Gideon's day, they're being used by God to oppress them because they, they do not worship the true and living God. They are enemies of those who worship the true God, and God makes them an instrument, an instrument of oppression, an instrument of humbling. See, God will, will do that. He will do that. And sometimes we, we, we fail to see it. We, we always we see are the Midianites and we don't see that God is behind the Midianites. That the rising up of the Midianites and the oppression of the Midianites is only because God is using them because we have sinned against Him. Well, Gideon then becomes the instrument to deliver the people. And verse 12 is insightful. as a summary of, of the Lord coming to him, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him and said unto him, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. And this text gives us something of the, the limited yet evident Christ-like position that it, Gideon plays here in the hand of the Lord. He is told that he is, that the Lord is with him. This is the the Emmanuel principle, God being with man. And here Gideon now is the one, as as God has withdrawn from His people in a certain sense, as He has brought the enemies into their presence to to persecute them and, and cause them to cry in repentance, it is with this man that God is known. And this man then becomes that instrument in the hand of God. He is the one that manifests God being with His people, just as the Lord Jesus perfectly manifested the same. Never was God with man as it was found in Jesus Christ. But similarly, he is called a mighty man of valor. And our Lord Jesus Christ, when he was upon this earth, was that perfect mighty man of valor. But the expression of that might by his ministry was not by the essence of divinity in his being, but by the fullness of the Holy Ghost upon his life. And that is what is evident here with Gideon as well. It is the power of the Spirit upon Gideon that makes him an instrument in the hand of God. And that's always God's means. God uses men and women, young and old, in every generation that pursue the unfilling of the Spirit of God, the empowerment by God. It is by God that they accomplish what they will accomplish, not by their own strength. And it's not just for what's perceived as great and mighty tasks. It's for everything, child of God. How can you faithfully go to work and be faithful and be used by God right there in the place of employment? How is it that you may be a means of blessing in your home, outside of your home, in your community, farther afield? How is it but by the help of the Spirit? Pray for the Spirit. Pray for the Spirit in your life. It is amazing how He uses the weak things to confound the mighty as we recognize the poverty of our own abilities, but how God can use us irrespective of that poverty. So God is going to raise up Gideon to fight against this, what you might term in one sense, an apostate branch. Someone who could point back and say, a people who could point back and say, our father Abraham. But they did not know the God of Abraham. So we've summarized this very simply. Gideon, he who battled for God. He who battled for God. Not that he's the only one who ever battled for God. But this is the the kind of, the focus of the, the life that we see in him And we want again to consider here his call. His call. His call comes in verse 11 and 12, predominantly where there came an angel of the Lord and sat under an oak which was in Ophrah and pertained unto Joash the Abiezrite and his son Gideon threshed wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him and said unto him, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. Our introduction to him finds him threshing wheat. It's not a very... Significant act, but it's something that needs to be done, and so he's engaging in this as practical way. Never again, again. God doesn't always meet with us in the place of prayer, though we often have to be there at the place of prayer and frequent the place of prayer. But sometimes the Lord will come to us even beyond the place of prayer, and He will meet with us in places where we may not expect it. Even as you conduct your business through the day, expect God to meet with your heart and to come to your aid. And so here it is with Gideon. Now often you would, usually rather I should say, you would thresh wheat in an open place. That's, that's really the part of the, what you need to be in an open place where the, the winds can help carry away the chaff and you're left with the actual kernel. But here he is, he is hiding, he's by the wine press. He's in an area that's actually blocking some of the, the wind that would help him do what he is endeavoring to do. And he's, he's doing that for, for good reason. We're told in verse 11 to hide it from the Midianites. The Midianites were, were coming and taking away everything that they would, they would harvest, leaving them, in the language of verse 6, greatly impoverished. And so he's hiding. He's trying to preserve that which they have for the benefit of he and those that he was responsible for. And the angel of the Lord comes and, and addresses him, and he is res- reluctant to respond to that call. He, he, he's, there isn't this natural sense in him as you read down through it, to, to, to see in him, yes, this is my time to shine. This, oh, I've been waiting for this moment. Obviously, yes, I, I knew you were about to come. I, I know all of that. In this, he is like the, the latter Moses. The, the 40-year-old Moses was, was ready to, to take on the enemy and to deliver the children of Israel. The 80-year-old Moses doesn't feel that way And Gideon is there. Gideon is in that place. He is a man who does not feel himself up to the task. And that's okay. It is okay. We all possess natural fear, and it is wise and sensible for us all to feel our own limitations. And it is concerning when a young man, or anyone for that matter, enters into God's work or endeavors to do some task for the Lord and they think they have everything they need. They imagine themselves to possess all the gifts necessary, and they lack fear. No, the men that God uses possess a natural reluctance. They do. We are all haunted by doubts. I am no different. We have our doubts. And yet, little will happen in the kingdom of Christ unless... Men and women, the people of God, get beyond their doubts and respond in faith, trusting the Lord despite their doubts. The fears don't always go away. They don't. But the difference between those who do something for God and those who do not isn't the absence of fear. It is the willingness, despite the fear, to obey. And God overcomes Gideon's fears by a clear call, verses 14 through 16. The Lord looked upon him and said, Go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have not I sent thee? Again, there's there's the Exodus 3 language there. I'm sending you, Moses. I'm sending you, Gideon, as it is on this occasion. Wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Again, he's, he's bringing the limitations. He's, he's putting them before the Lord just like Moses was. I don't, have, I don't have the means, the ability. And the Lord said unto him, Surely I will be with thee. If my memory does not fail me, the language of Exodus 3 is certainly I will be with thee. It's the same language, it's the same sense of call that everyone must receive from the Lord, that God is with us. That's the only concern. The concern is not the greatness of the task. The concern is not the impossibility of the circumstances. The concern is, is God with me? Is God with me? Our Lord Jesus dealt with His disciples in the very same way. He understood their limitations He recognizes the weakness of every Christian. All power is given unto me, and he is promising them, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the earth. I'm with you. I'm with you. That's that's what makes the decided difference. So this is what you need, Christian. In all your tasks, you need the Lord with you. And it's easy for us to be those Christians who say, that's not for me. That's not for me. (laughs) It's so easy. If I was to go through this list and to actually make inquiry which ones particularly you know, need extra manpower, need more hands on deck, as it were, and then I was to go to some of you and say, hey, can you help in this area? Some of you might respond to me, depending on what it is, you may respond to me by, no, that's not for me. I'm not that person. I don't have those skills. I do not have that ability. And there's a certain amount of truth there, don't get me wrong, but where, where is that heart that says, here am I, send me? That's the need, really, for us all. To overcome our fear, not to eliminate fear. We don't eliminate fear. To overcome fear is a sight of the risen Christ. That's what it was for Isaiah. He saw the glory of the Lord. For us, it is the same. It is a sense of the risen Christ. That's what propelled the disciples to the ends of the world. That's what carried Christians across the globe to this very day. It is that sense that the risen Christ has called me, is sending me, and that's the end of it. That's all that matters. It's not my evaluation of my ability. And there are cases in which some objective... Input is necessary where someone needs to be told, I, I really don't think you're, you're, you're equipped for this or called for this. There are, there are certain times where, where that comes into play, but let us not be so quick to, to adopt that position for ourselves. There is something you can do. There is something you can do. And there's a crying need for us to be ready to receive from God this this command to do whatever it might be, to put our hands to the plough, to engage in the labor, to to face the the battles of our day. I don't know where the next Martin Luther comes from. I don't know know where the next John Calvin appears. I don't know where we have the next Wycliffe. I I don't know where they come from. All I know is that that these these are men that are willing. God always uses the willing, not, not those that are fearless. Every one of us has fear. But we obey despite the fear. How do you get rid of the fear? How do you get rid of the fear? You get rid of the fear, as I've already intimated, by seeing the Lord. When you're fearful, I can tell you when you're fearful to serve or to obey in some fashion, I can tell you now what you're in want of is an encounter with the Lord. Gideon, I believe, was meeting with the Lord. Verse 13 seems to indicate that to me when It tells us, Gideon said unto him, O my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then is all this befallen us? And where be all his miracles, which our fathers told us of, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord hath forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. These questions reveal, I think they reveal, why God put his hand upon Gideon. Gideon lived in a time when the spiritual tide was out. When, when people were not as interested in spiritual things, when idolatry was very much on display, as we will see in just a moment. Men did that which was right in their own eyes. Zeal was rare. Passion for truth was scarce. But on such a day, Gideon is longing, he is longing for, for God to work, as he had done in the past. His questions, why and where, are good questions. They are good questions questions that are relevant to this day. Why then is all this befallen us? Why? Why? Why is America going the way it is going? Why? Why are all lands, many lands certainly, going in a certain direction? Where be all His miracles? Where are the experiences of the outpouring of the Spirit as has been known in the past? where? These are good questions. They come from a heart that has pondered these questions, that has mused on it, that is concerned about the want of it. Here is a man that is wrestling with what he is faced with. He's not just numbly going on content with his own little experience, but he has questions in his mind that arise. And really what he's doing then is arguing. He's arguing, I would say an honorable argument, an honorable argument as to why. Why are things the way they are? Why are they not as they were before? We need to be able to argue before the Lord. And if we're going to argue before the Lord, I mean in in an honorable way, in a respectful way, if we are going to argue before the Lord, we need to know our Bibles we need to know what God has done for us in the past. I mean, His people in the past. We need to be able to look at things and say, why has all this befallen us? Recognizing that, that this isn't just the Midianites. This is the thing. Verse 6 again. Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites. But verse 1 tells us, the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian. It isn't just the Midianites. It is. It is... It is the Lord. So why would God do this? Where is the evidence of His power as in the past? We aren't to just accept moral degradation. We're not to accept our society and our communities just just going on into more rebellion against God and His Word. These are not things that we are to accept. Again, we're, we're thinking about the Reformation this coming weekend. We'll... Will bring it before us, and and, and what, what happened there? But 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 people that that believed in the word of God and sought to apply it everywhere in society and saw reform. They saw massive reform on a way that was felt right across every level of society. It wasn't perfect. By no means was it perfect, but there was a reversal of that which was going on before, simply because they got serious about God's Word and they got serious about repentance. And God was pleased to favor them powerfully. So I know what goes on in most people's minds. You think the problem today is a certain political party or because someone occupies a certain office. And that's no different than Gideon saying, it's the Midianites. And not perceiving that the hand of God is behind all these things, and you can spend all day criticising and putting up your little social media posts and showing your displeasure at the way the country is run today, and, and, and go ahead—it's not like there isn't there isn't a foundation. What the Midianites did, for example, was wrong, right? But but what what a vain what a vain effort to simply see only the enemy as you perceive it, or these people who want to bring in that which contradicts the law of God, to only see that. The question is what, what Gideon says. Why? Why, then, is all this befallen us? Gideon seeks confirmation of his call, verse 17 and following. God gives him great reassurance, verse 22 Gideon perceived that he was an angel of the Lord. Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for because I have seen an angel of the Lord face to face, and the Lord said unto him, Peace be unto thee, fear not, thou shalt not die. Yes, the Son of God was before him. The second person of the Trinity stood before him and communicated just just as he does. As he does to his people throughout the ages. Christ is the Word. So this is his call. Run over very quickly. Then his conquest. When it comes to Gideon's conquest, most of you know the primary story here and they rush off to deal with his battle against the Midianites. But there are a couple of important aspects to look at before we get to that battle. First, the preparation for the conquest. And in verse 24, we see the first mark of this preparation. And that is he needed to exercise himself in true worship. Verse twenty-four. Then Gideon built an altar there unto the Lord, and called it Jehovah Shalom. Unto this day, it is yet in Ophrah, of the Abiezerites. So he builds an altar. True worship. Point is very simple. All great exploits for God begin at the cross. They begin getting right before God, coming before Him by means of Jesus Christ and His sacrifice, the shedding of His blood. We ourselves need to be rightly prepared. Our own hearts need to be rightly regulated. Our sins must be repented of. And that's what Gideon's doing. He's getting his own heart right. Again, to draw from Isaiah. To draw from Isaiah, you see here, you see there in His call in Isaiah 6, you see Him being brought by the revelation of the glory of God to confess that he was just like everyone else. He is sinful, he is wretched, he is wicked, he is rebellious. No man ever has been used by God, that is no sinner saved by grace, has ever been used by God who has not first recognized he's just as bad, if not worse, than those he's ministering to. You have to recognize your own sinfulness. You can't simply look at the sins of society and imagine that you're detached from that, that you have no part in that, that you're not in some way guilty before the same holy God. And there's so many ways this could be applied. I've already mentioned Isaiah. Woe is unto me. After all the woes to the nation, woes to me as well. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm a wicked man too. But you find this throughout the Scriptures, you you find the same thing. God God deals with, uses those who recognize their own sin. Read the prayers, for example. I pointed this out, out before. Read the prayers of Nehemiah, of Daniel, of Ezra. Read the prayers of those men and they always include themselves in the confession of sin. It's not their sins or the sins of our people. It's we have sinned now those men had not done the things that some others in the nation had done but they did not exclude themselves so so let us get that let us get that look out at the state of america today see all of the sins and you think those people out there see that's <laughs> the church is so devoid with a sense of the glory of god all we can see are the great crimes out there We can't see our own sins. We're not getting before the altar, even Jesus Christ crucified, pleading forgiveness for our own sins, the grounds of our own acceptance before the Lord. He needed to exercise himself in true worship. It is the worshipers, the true worshipers, penitent worshipers, That see the conquest turned for the glory of God. But also, not only did he need to exercise himself in true worship, he needed to help end false worship. Verse 25 through 32 gives us indication of what was going on. I'll read just a number of these verses, not all of them, but verse 25, it came to pass the same night that the Lord said unto him, Take thy father's young bullock, Even the second bullock of seven years old, and throw down the altar of Baal that thy father hath, and cut down the grove that is by it. Your father has an idol, it needs to be thrown down. It's one thing to do just some, any old idol, it's another thing to actually know that it's on the property of your own father. Well, he, he goes ahead and he does this. He does it by night. We'll look at that in just a moment. But the Lord is pleased to, to use this. This is an important turning point in, in the lives of, of the Lord's people. This, this giving In fact, here's the interesting thing. Verse 28, When the men of the city arose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was cast down. And they come inquiring, verse 29, who hath done this thing? It, so it was, it was on his father's property, it was his father who put it there, but, but everyone uses it. It's, it's, it's actually something that they're all concerned about. So, so let's, let's just step back again, let's take the big picture look. What's going on here? Here's a people oppressed by the Midianites, by the hand of God. Eventually, because of their impoverishment, their physical impoverishment, they're, they're, they're having their wealth stripped from them. Their fields are being stripped bare. Their oxes and everything are being taken from them by this nomadic people who gallop around in camels. And they cry to the Lord. And as they cry to the Lord, God's preparing a man to bring deliverance. And before they ever go to war, first this man must rightly worship God, and then the idolatry needs to be dealt with. There's no point. They, they have to deal with the root of the problem. The reason for the Midianites was their idolatry. It was the fact that Baal had place in Israel and was worshipped by the communities. It's that fact that it brought the Midianites. What's the point in going out to war when the source of the problem is still there? Again, illustrating for us, illustrating so beautifully for us this morning, that pointing fingers at political parties and this person and that person solely without the ability to see the idols of our own hearts is the most vain exercise that we can engage in. We grieve God by our idols. and As I've said before, we feel, we feel the breaches of the second table. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear, fit, w- bear false witness. Thou shalt not covet. We feel those, right? Someone takes life from us, from a family member, that's, that's known and grieved over. Adultery against us in some way, that is grieved over. Theft, that is... What's happening here to Israel? It is theft. The Eighth Commandment is being broken. And they feel it. They feel they're robbing from us. But the reason, the reason so often, it doesn't begin there with the Midianites. It begins with the people of God who are engaging in false worship, who are breaking the first table of the law. No other God before you. None, none. There's no place for worshiping other gods and the average American today, let me say this, the average evangelical sitting in churches this morning in America does not give a hoot about the first tale of the law. He doesn't care at all. He'll he feel it if someone steals something from them or whatever. He will feel it and he'll be upset. About it. But why is, it, why is it going on? Why is it that our streets aren't as safe as they used to be? Why is it that no parent now does what, what we did even in my generation <laughs> well my when I maybe it was just us I don't know I, I have a feeling that this was kind of broadly the case my mom would say be back by this time right whatever it was be back by this time that was it <laughs> we could have been and we were at times six miles away five six miles away on our bicycles Completely different areas. You couldn't see us. You had, no, you had no clue where we were. Not a clue. We would just take off. And as long as you were back by the time, you didn't get in trouble. <laughs> as long as you got back. Tell me what parent does that now. We don't. We don't want them out of our sight. Don't leave the avenue. I need to be able to look out and see. And if I can't, I need to know where you are. What's changed? There could be a number of things, a number of factors that could be considered. But there's definitely a sense in which we just don't feel that our communities are as safe as they used to be. And we feel that. But the problem is not looking at the government, looking at the legislation, looking at the laws. Looking at The problem is our communities no longer fear God. They have absolutely no sense of who God is. And even in the church, we have so, so brought God down that most Christians haven't the first clue who it is they claim to worship. And this is the great crime of America. So when you point the finger... Point back to yourself. This is the great problem that we are facing today. And it will not be until Christians, yes, those who claim to know the Lord, begin to really get serious about who God is and worshiping Him and deepening repentance that there will be any hope for change. Gideon's called down to pull down the false worship. No compromise with it. Not make excuses for it. And this is necessary. This is necessary. We need, we need to do that. We need to, to worship the Lord aright. There are idols that need to be torn down. Maybe even they're here. If we don't, we're like what Jesus says in Matthew 5:13, thenceforth, good for nothing. Good for nothing. K- kind of summarizes America. You want, you want three words summarize American Christianity? Good for nothing. It should break our hearts. We don't know God. we don't know God. And again, Gideon, Gideon has an actual fear. He's 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 not this great champion who who thinks that he has the power, he has the ability, he can he can do it all. <laughs> That's not the case at all. Verse twenty-seven. Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had said unto him, and so it was because he feared his father's household and the men of the city that he could not do it by day, that he did it by night. <laughs> so I mean it's not like he's like the the bastion of courage here. The shadow of night. But again, at least he's obeying. He's afraid, but he's obeying. That's, that's, that's where we need to be. Afraid, but obeying. The people of the conquest. <sighs> Who are the people? There's preparation for it. You see it here, the true worship, the end of false worship, pulling down Baal. But who are the people? Verse 34 begins to tell us of the, the blowing of a trumpet. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon and he blew a trumpet. And Abiezer was gathered after him. So that's all he does. He blows a trumpet. And from that, there's the gathering of the army and the preparation for battle. He blows a trumpet. At this time of the year, you can't read that but think of Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses to a church door that was used for signage to let the community know what was going on or whatever. And all he does is he, he writes something down and he nails it publicly. That's it. That's all he does. But it's the beginning. One blast of a trumpet used by God can change an entire generation. One piece of paper with a few arguments on it that you have in contesting against the status quo of the day religiously kneeled onto a public door can change. Not just the shape of a generation, but the shape of multiple generations. That we feel that impact to this day this, this is God behind this. Never 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 look at the tiny little things you do the, little, the the little the little kind of steps of courage that you take We, we thought about it on on Wednesday night when we heard about Mariana, a sixteen year old in in jason 's church. We thought about her taking her stand, and that 's it it 's so small, it seems so insignificant, but there there can be ripple effects through these steps of obedience, even when fear is gripping the heart. Ordinary things can have extraordinary outcomes. Don't underestimate the impact of simple obedience when you're afraid. Verse 36 through 40, you have Gideon and his fleece. Not going to get into all of that, but an army of 32,000 respond to his blast of the trumpet. But God wants to put on display his power. And so you come to chapter 7, and you have this whittling down of the army through two things who is not valiant and who is not vigilant? It turns out that 22,000 of them are not valiant. And in verses 5 through 7, the army is reduced to 300, 9,700 are not vigilant. And you're left with 300. Not valiant, not vigilant. Those are things we must have. God uses the valiant, He uses the vigilant. But these battles are not won by armies. They are not. Deuteronomy 20 verse 1, When thou goest out to battle against thine enemies, and seest horses and chariots and a people more than thou, be not afraid of them. For the Lord thy God is with thee, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Now let me just stop there. Being afraid of them, there's a certain element of that, that that, that really, what the Lord deals with in fear isn't that there has to be the complete eradication of all sense of natural fear. That's not what he's saying. Be not afraid of them is don't let fear dominate your actions. Don't let fear move you in an act of unbelief. So, I was just a little wake up for anyone who may be drifting. We chime there at twelve fifteen just to let you know there's about fifteen minutes to go. It's like it's like mass, you know. (laughs) That's a joke, obviously. Psalm twenty, verse seven. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Proverbs 21, 31, The horse is prepared against the day of battle, but safety is of the Lord. So 300 are left. That's it. (laughs) This is just adding to Gideon's fear. But he is going to obey despite the fear. Battle for God despite the fear. That's it, Christian. That's it homeschool mums, who have your fears. Am I doing a good job? Am I? How will they turn out? Battle for God despite the fear. Keep being faithful despite the fear. You just, you just you keep on keeping on. That, that's the lesson. And you make sure that your own sins are confessed and your own weakness is recognized and you're utterly dependent upon God. You can't do it. It's a great danger to To think that you have it yourself. You have the ability yourself. You don't. Verses 9 through 25 gives us the pursuit in the conquest. The account of how Gideon and his 300 men witnessed the destruction of 120,000 men with nothing but trumpets, pitchers, and torches for each man. When you get to verse 24... Gideon sent messengers throughout all Mount Ephraim saying, come down against the Midianites and take before them the waters unto Beth and Jordan. And all the men of Ephraim gathered themselves together and took the waters onto Beth and Jordan. He, he, he's, he's like, let's, let's keep pushing. Let's not give up. Let not one victory cause us to be relaxed. Yes, yes, we're not in the business of being content with partial victories. Partial victories. Thank God for partial victories. But... We want, we want complete victory. We don't relax. This is, this, is why, this is why the battle must be pressed to your dying breath. Christian, older person, older person especially, content perhaps, tempted maybe to put up your feet, as if you've had some partial victories, and now you can sit back, absolutely not, don't give in to the temptation. Oh, what you do may be adjusted, and what you're able to do may have changed over the years. And your giftings may be refined so that you're better utilized in one way rather than in another way. But but don't don't stop. Finish the job. Finish the job. Keep going on to your dying breath. Living for Christ, honoring his name being a praise in this perishing world to the glory of the salvation provided for in Christ. Victory is not reason to relax. It is a call to labor more, especially because the devil is never far away. And you come to chapter 8, the men of Ephraim get involved, and we're told they ask this question, Why hast thou served us thus, that thou calledst us not, when thou wentest to fight with the Midianites? And they did chide with him sharply. Why didn't you bring us in? Why weren't we invited to come? And you just think to yourself, "Why's up. Just enjoy the victory. So don't, give the, don't give the man a hard time. <laughs> Dr. Beakey, I heard one sentence. He's got a message on, I think it was in this message, where he deals with Criticism. And um, in that, he says, "He who stands at the front must be prepared to be kicked in the rear." And uh, <laughs> there's truth, there's truth in it. No, no man is perfect. No man thinks of everything. No man has it all. Absolutely not. And so there's always criticism that can be levelled. Always, always. But but be thankful. Don't don't start chiding the man, as he's endeavouring to do his best, and they, they, really what happens here, and I'm not, I can't read it all, I encourage you to read these chapters, but, but they take personal offense, that's really what it's about, they take personal offense at this. I think, what, how sad, how much bad can be, can be done, how the devil can make inroads when people take personal offense? What's the answer to that, to the initial rise of personal offense? What's the biblical answer to a sense of, I've been personally offended? Number one, stop. Just stop, right? Stop being so filled with self-importance. And number two, if it's really significant, like if it really is a matter that is important, go to the one who caused the offense. Matthew 18, simple. Go to them, let them know. They maybe aren't even aware of it. They're oblivious to it. They haven't even the first clue that that caused offense. They don't know how you, you, you interpreted all of that. They're not even thinking, like Gideon, not even thinking about it. personal offense is pride. Always. Always. Either pride or, or a little impetus to, to actually help a person, to help a brother or sister out who's, who, who does need, um, who needs to be told directly. He needs to be told, you know, that, 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 that's an issue there. You, you shouldn't say those things or do those things or whatever. And that brother or sister we trust will receive it graciously. But personal offense and getting all upset like the Ephraimites here do, it's it's just not not helpful. But time is running on here. I want to move on. There's a wonderful little phrase here in verse 4. Gideon came to Jordan and passed over. He and the 300 men that were with him, faint yet pursuing them. Faint yet pursuing. That, that's life, isn't it? Some of you, you feel the faintness. You feel the faintness tired, life's wearying. There are challenges, there are battles, there are temptations and trials, there are pressures and difficulties, there are obligations and responsibilities, there are all sorts of things, and they press, and they press, and they press, and they press, and they press. This is wonderful. Faint yet pursuing. How many times our Lord Jesus did that? How many times? Utterly weary in body. Barely opportunity to get any sleep whatsoever. Constantly pressed on by by people and by their demands and by their questions and desires. No doubt many times faint, yet pursuing. So this is Christ-likeness. It is is perseverance. It is Christ-like to persevere, to press on, to stay the course. To engage in the battle. To remain faithful. Even when the body's crying out, just, just give me rest. I want to give up. No, no, pursue. It's at that moment, That's that moment maybe when, when you're going to see God break through in, in the most wonderful way An answer to prayer will come, right, when you're just about to give up. When you're, when you're fed up praying for that lost family member. And you see again, Come Thanksgiving, and there's just a hardness there. And you're tempted to think, oh, there's no point. I've prayed for 30 years. There's no point. It's right at that point. It's at that point when you're most tempted to stop. You say, no, I will not. I will not. I will take it yet again. I will yet pursue Don't get faint, Christian. That's what the devil wants. A bunch of faint believers. Don't get faint. Fathers shepherding your children. Mothers trying to help them. Grandparents being involved when, when your children really, maybe their lives are a mess and their families are in disarray and you're like, oh dear. You're, you're, you're tempted to, oh, it's my fault. I did that. Or... Or there's nothing I can do about it. Or it's too, it's too much. I, I want to just keep, keep out of it. These are all the wrong responses. All the wrong responses. Blaming yourself. What, 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 if there's something to be blamed, get it under the blood and go on. Get it under the blood of Christ and go on. If there's something else, just, just, just be faint yet pursuing pursuing. We, we sang of it, they that sown tears shall reap in joy. Just, you keep on, you keep on keeping on. Let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Galatians 6 verse 9. I see their first century Christians growing weary. They, they saw the miracles of the apostles. They saw unbelievable things happen, and they got weary. First Corinthians fifteen fifty six, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Yes, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles, they shall run and not be weary, they shall walk and not faint. Faint yet pursuing. That's you. I, I feel that that may be many of you here this morning. Faint. But add this in. Yet pursue. Yet pursue. Time is gone. His conclusion I'll just really run through this. Gideon was not a perfect man, but he is mentioned in Hebrews 11, so that's to his credit. And there were great exploits that he accomplished for God, but he didn't end particularly well. We're told of a decline in verse 22 and 23 of chapter 8. The men of Israel said unto Gideon, Roll thou over us, both thou and thy son, and thy son's son also. For thou hast delivered us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said unto them, I will not rule over you, neither shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Okay, so that's fine. He, he, is, he is tempted here to do something, but he keeps away from it. But verse 24 goes on, Gilead said unto them, I would desire a request of you that you would give me every man the earrings of his prey, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread a garment and did cast therein every man the earrings of his prey. And so on and so forth. they, they, they takes this, and verse 27, Gideon made an ephod thereof and put it in a city, even Ophrah. and all Israel went thither, a whoring after it which thing became a snare onto onto Gideon and to his house. So instead of just sending them away, it will not be so. And ending it there, his, his decline leads to this digression, brings back false worship. And in verse 30, we are told, Gideon had three score ten sons, of his body begotten, and he had many wives. So he embraced the lifestyle of those around him. He he feels in, numeral, in numerous ways. And in that, he is like most of the characters of Scripture, most of the lives well lived. Every single one of the individuals that we will look at, every single one of them had failure. And this, this failure pointed people to look for another saviour. There must be someone else to deliver us. But we can learn from the good and get in. Feel weak. Your weakness and another person's strength are comparatively no different before God. The difference is going to be God's power in you. Christ, the hope of glory living through you, that will make the difference. So we may feel ourselves like Gideon, but if we have the promise of God's presence, if if we have Christ with us very evidently, we can be more than conquerors through him that loved us. And we can battle for God in our day, just as Gideon did in his day. May the Lord help us. Let us pray. Lord knows your weakness. The question really is this morning do you know your weakness? It's no surprise for you to tell God that you can't do something. He knows how weak you are. But again, the question really is do you know how weak you are? What idols remain in your heart, Christian? What things are you excusing? What things are being allowed to have breath in your life that need to be called and put to death because they're robbing you of spiritual power and of being of use in the kingdom? Even now as you pray, confess your sins, turn your life over to Him, ask that important question, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do and see what the Lord will do with you and for you. Father, I pray for this congregation. I thank thee for many lives that have been well lived and are being well lived. But we all are very much aware that We need more deliverance, Lord. Deepen our repentance. Help us to live in the shadow of the cross. Let us depend on the finished work of Christ alone. And may faith always rise up where fear exists. And may we obey even in trembling. Show us thy glory. Reveal Thy Son in us all. God of mercy in those without Christ this morning who need the greater Gideon to come to their rescue and save them out of all their troubles. Lord Jesus, have mercy. Bless us then as we part from this place. Command blessings upon Zion, dear God. Bring us back here tonight to praise Thee. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus The love of God our Father and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore. Amen.